sounded like the angels were ushering me in there. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> we're out, yeah. <laughs> good point. I guess I'm an optimist. <laughs> well, it's great to see you all this morning. Uh, pleasure to be with you all on another uh, joyous Sunday morning. Uh, rejoicing about Rachel passing her test. What glorious news that is. Uh, so pleased for her. Uh, congratulations, Rachel. And uh, we are also this morning uh, lifting up Michelle's father in prayer. Uh, Michelle's father had a fall and uh, he injured his head and uh, he's in the hospital now and it's a little touch and go. So uh, we are praying that he will be healed and that he'll be able to return home uh, to his house. And if not, uh, if it's the Lord's will, that he returns to his Lord and Savior. And so uh, we're, we're lifting him up this morning. Uh, so before we begin our message today, uh, let's, let's pray for Michelle's father, Lou, and, and for the message. Uh, Lord God, we thank you uh, this morning for the opportunity to gather, uh, to be together, Lord, uh, in your house of worship. Lord, studying your word, which sanctifies us, which saves us, and which we know has the power to bring us home to you. And we lift up uh, Michelle's father, Lou, as uh, he's in the hospital now, and uh, Lord, we pray your mercy on him. Uh, whatever your will is, we pray uh, that it would be done. Uh, Lord, we selfishly ask that he would be healed and allowed to uh, return to his earthly home. But Lord, if that's not your will, we pray that he returns to his heavenly home uh, with no pain. Lord, uh, we just lift him up to you. We lift Michelle up to you and pray your blessings on them. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we are continuing our study in the book of Romans uh, in a message that I am calling, uh, I'm calling this message, Who's Your Master? Uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to uh, 23, as Tom read for us. Well, uh, many of you may have heard of uh, St. Augustine of Hippo. Uh, he's one of the most famous theologians the church has ever had, but before he was converted, converted to Christianity. Uh, he was quite the wild child. His mother, Monica, used to pray for him uh, nonstop that he would come to faith in the Lord. But uh, he had lived a, a life of profound uh, sexual sin and, and immorality uh, in his earlier life. Uh, and then uh, after he became a Christian, uh, he uh, bumped into uh, one of his old mistresses on the street one day, and he saw her walking towards him and so he turned and he walked the other way. And the woman uh, was surprised and she said, Augustine, it is I. Uh, and he turned and hustled away even faster and she continued to chase, Augustine, it is I. Uh, he, she continued to call out and realizing that he was not going to be able to shake her uh, and that uh, she was beginning to cause a scene, uh, he turned and faced her and hurt. Uh, she looked at him and said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine uh, turned and faced her and said, yes, but it is no longer I. Uh, and that is uh, the power of conversion. Uh, Augustine had become a Christian, and he was no longer who he was. Uh, he was somebody new now. Uh, and he had become a Christian when he had read uh, Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 13 to 14, which says, uh, Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalry, Rather, arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. And those verses hit home very hard for Augustine because that was the life that he lived. Uh, and those verses completely changed his life. And later, uh, he wrote about his conversion. No further would I read, nor needed I, for instantly at the end of this sentence, 
by a light, as it were, of serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And so his life was completely changed. He put off all the immorality and the sin that had plagued his life, and he went on to become uh, the Bishop of Hippo, which was a city uh, in North Africa. Uh, and he, his, his prolific writings uh, shaped the Christian church uh, for over a thousand years. Uh, his, his writings still survive uh, to this day. Uh, before there was Luther, before there was Calvin, there was Augustine uh, shaping the theology of the church. And uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that his friends called him Augie the Big Doggy because of that. <laughs> I actually just made that up. That's not true. <laughs> but that's what can happen when the Lord gets a hold of your life. The Lord can change your life completely. And that's what he did uh, for Augustine. He had previously served sin, but now as a new creation, uh, he served God. And so the Christian life uh, is not a bit of spackle and paint that we put over a crumbling old house. It's the demolition of that crumbling house and the building of a completely new house. Uh, we don't just continue uh, living as we were and then add an act of service here or there. Uh, if we were involved in some kind of sin, we don't continue in that sin and then uh, pat ourselves on the back because we helped a neighbor uh, unload his groceries into the house or something and think that that is what salvation and sanctification mean. Uh, so we have to understand that, that when we do that, when we just add like an act of service onto our already sinful lives, uh, we're just putting lipstick on a pig, as the saying goes, right? It's a, it's a miserable, uh, sinful life that we're living, and we're just covering it uh, with, with a mask uh, that makes it look a little bit better, but it's still, uh, it's still not the life that we're supposed to live. So uh, the Christian life should look completely different. Uh, when we choose God, uh, we choose to, to leave our life of sin. We choose to begin uh, service to God. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one or hate the other or love this one and hate the other. And so Paul made it very clear in these verses that you can only serve one master as well. And he also made it clear that you will have a master uh, either sin or the Lord will be your master. And so the only question is, who's your master? And that's the question that we're asking today. Uh, so today we're going to see that, that we have a choice to make. Uh, we, we can choose sin or we can choose the Lord. And we'll see that a Christian is one who has chosen to obey God, and we'll see that the results extend now and into eternity. Uh, so let's see first that we get to choose who we will serve. Uh, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So you remember when we started chapter 6, uh, this, this section of Romans that begins sanctification following on the heels of uh, chapters 3 to 5, which were all about salvation, uh, Paul asked this question, what then? Uh, shall we continue sinning so that grace may increase? And, and in answer to that question, Paul used the metaphor of baptism, uh, that we shall not continue to live in sin because we have died, we've been buried, and we've been raised with Christ in his baptism. So that was the, the metaphor then, baptism. Here the metaphor is slavery to explain our new lives in Christ, which are marked as obedience to Christ rather than marked by obedience to sin. 
And so his answer to the question in verse 15, uh, what shall we say then? Shall we uh, go on sinning because you're not under law but under grace? It's the same exact answer as the answer to verse 1. Uh, May it never be. Uh, If you carry the King James, it's God forbid. Uh, You can almost hear Paul's tone of voice. Uh, It almost reaches, are you crazy? I think is what he's saying. Of course we don't live uh, under sin when we have become under law. Uh, So Let's consider this idea of first century slavery uh, just for a minute, and and particularly in Rome, because many scholars estimate that uh, up to and maybe even more than 50% of the population of Rome uh, were slaves in the first century. And so Paul's Roman readers most certainly would have understood this metaphor of slavery because it was part and parcel uh, of their culture. They either were a slave or they probably had slaves, one or the other. But first century slavery uh, was not like American slavery, like we think of in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, Because most most of the time, first century slavery uh, was voluntary. Uh, A person might accrue a debt that they couldn't pay to someone, and so what they would do is say, I I can't pay you this debt, but I I offer myself uh, to you as a slave for an agreed upon period of time, and after that period of time was over, Uh, The debt was considered paid, and the slave was released uh, to freedom again. Uh, But during that time of slavery, uh, that slave owed complete and total obedience to his master. There wasn't one minute of the day that wasn't his own. If a master woke the slave up at 3 a.m. and said, go dig a ditch, well, that slave got up and he dug a ditch at 3 a.m. He wasn't free to obey another master either. He owed his total allegiance to that master. And so even though it was only for a period of time, a slave was owned in the fullest sense of the word uh, by his master. And so that's why Paul chose this metaphor uh, to use. Uh, He recognizes that it's an imperfect metaphor. That's why he almost apologizes for using it in verse 19. Uh, But the metaphor works up to a point because uh, before they were saved by faith, they were slaves to sin. They were owned by it. They weren't free not to sin. Uh, They had no choice but to sin, and uh, so they sinned because they were slaves to sin, obeying its calling because sin uh, was its master, was their master. Now remember, we said last week, uh, we we started talking about sanctification. This is our third message in Romans chapter 6, and and Paul's been working through sanctification here in chapter 6, and what we said about sanctification is that it's the lifelong process where we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to become more like Christ. And we said that if we're going to progress in our, our, uh, uh, our Christ-likeness, in our road towards sanctification, uh, last week we said there are three things we have to do. We have to know, we have to consider, and we have to present. We have to know that we have died and buried, been buried and raised with Christ to new life. We consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ, and we present ourselves to the Lord as instruments of righteousness. So uh, those are three steps on the road to sanctification. And what we're seeing this week really is a continuation of this theme of presenting ourselves. Uh, Paul is telling uh, these, these people that they need to present themselves. And so being a Christian means that we continue to present ourselves Uh, to the Lord uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience uh, to do what we're uh, being asked to do. And so it's an entirely new life that we are living now as Christians. And uh, we could 
continue uh, in our old life, and we could call ourselves Christians, but not really be Christians uh, if we are continuing to live a life of uh, just wanton sinfulness, or we can turn to the Lord and obey uh, his calling. And if we continue to serve sin, it may be that we're only calling ourselves Christians, but we've never really had that life-changing experience of being baptized uh, in the Holy Spirit and actually becoming a Christian. Uh, So you can only serve one master. We're either going to serve sin or we're going to serve the Lord. And if we choose to obey sin, well, that means we're obedient to sin and the result of that choice is death. But if we choose to be slaves of obedience, we know that being a slave of obedience leads to salvation, justification, being declared righteous. We've said that the Holy Spirit is our master and we're going to obey his will. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told about the, the two sons, where the father told both sons, uh, go into the field and work for me uh, in my farm. And the one son said, I won't do it. Uh, but then later on, he did go do it. And then the second son, uh, he said, uh, I will go join uh, my, my brother in the field. But then he didn't do it. And so you have two sons here. Uh, and so the first one went, but he probably went ultimately out of obligation, out of guilt, uh, out of desire to stay in his father's good graces. He was obedient, but not necessarily with the right heart. The second one was completely disobedient, right? He had no intention of pleasing his father whatsoever. But there is a third option, and that option is the one that God wants. He wants obedience, and he wants it with a joyful heart. Because obedience out of obligation is still a heart that's opposed to God, right? When we're made to do something, we do it, but we're sure not that happy about doing it. And God wants us to not only obey, but to obey with a willful heart. Now, to be fair, not many sons do want to go out and work in the hot sun all day, digging, plowing, doing whatever you have to do uh, to make a farm work, uh, because it's backbreaking work and the sun in Israel is unrelenting. Uh, But sometimes... Obedience to the Holy Spirit requires us to do some things that we don't necessarily want to do. Uh, We don't want to miss football on Sunday to go and serve uh, maybe in a soup kitchen or whatever else. And uh, when we meet somebody, we don't necessarily want to start the conversation uh, with, uh, do you know where you're going in eternity? Uh, Those are hard, hard icebreakers, right? Uh, It's easier to to just talk about the weather. Uh, So it's hard to obey the Holy Spirit and to look for opportunities to serve him well. Uh, But obedience means that we recognize the authority of the one who's asking, and then we submit to his will. So when we recognize that it's the Holy Spirit who's calling us to do this work, and we realize that he is our master and we are submitting to him, well then, uh, it's a lot easier to do the work. And that seems to be the way Paul's Roman audience obeyed, because he seems to be pleased uh, with his Roman audience for the most part. But sanctification is a process And we're not going to get there this side of heaven, but we can continue to to progress along the way. So let's see in the next verses that uh, we have a choice who we will obey. And secondly, a Christian has chosen to obey God. Uh, Verses 17 through 19. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. 
So we see that Paul's uh, Roman audience had made the choice uh, to follow God. And, and there's a sequence here that you can see. Uh, they had been slaves to sin. And then they were presented with a choice, follow God or continue to follow your life of sin. And what we see is that these Romans chose Jesus and they chose a new life and they were freed from sin and they became instead slaves of righteousness. And as we just said, there is a difference between willful obedience and reluctant compliance. And the difference is the attitude of the heart. Where is our heart? Uh, a slave may be willfully obedient or he may just be obedient. And the difference is to do it grumbling or to do it uh, out of happiness. And he had to do it because if he didn't do it, he was going to be killed. Uh, so he has to do it. But will he do it with a happy heart or will he do it just because he has to? And so when Paul said they became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which they had been entrusted, uh, this is where uh, obedience and joy meet. You meet uh, in a place where you're happy to do the will of the Holy Spirit. And you realize that it's not a chore to follow the Holy Spirit's direction. It's actually a joy to follow the Holy Spirit's direction. And we see here... Uh, that they became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which they were committed. That's an important phrase there uh, because you realize uh, that the New Testament uh, during Paul's writing here, it, it was in the process of being written, right? Uh, there were a couple letters written by the time Romans had been written. None of the Gospels had been written yet. A few of the epistles had been written, but they certainly hadn't been circulated, and it wasn't like everybody had a copy of them in their house, right? Uh, this, the way doctrine was passed down was orally. There was oral tradition. That's the way it was passed down. And as the apostles went about teaching and then uh, the, the New Testament was beginning uh, to be written, doctrine is being passed down over time orally. And then as, these, uh, as the doctrine uh, was starting to be written down, it was starting to be taught uh, by the writings and uh, later on by the Gospels. Uh, but these Romans had become obedient to this teaching that had been passed down to them, the teaching that they had received. And that's important because they received this teaching and they didn't stand in judgment over the teaching as though they had some authority over the teaching or that they wanted to pick the parts that they liked and disregard the parts that they didn't like. Uh, they stood under the teaching rather than over the teaching. And that's important because... Uh, doctrine in the church is so very important, and that's why unity of the church is based on strong doctrine that the church has believed and has always believed and taught. And that's why our creeds are important. That's why we recite the Nicene Creed here two or three times a year, so that we remember that we stand on the shoulders of the people who have gone before us, knowing that we believe what the church has believed for 20 centuries now, uh, and knowing that the body of Christ worldwide believes the same things uh, about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, salvation, redemption, a sanctification, a glorification, eternity. We all believe in this same doctrine. And so it's not that the doctrine is handed over to us so that we might stand in judgment over it as though we have the power to judge it or to manipulate that doctrine. We stand under the doctrine and we're handed over to it to, to believe it and to conform our lives to it. And that's how sanctification happens. This doctrine affects our worldview and it affects how we live out our lives. And again, we see that sanctification is the result of obedience. But sanctification requires 
full commitment, and not half-hearted commitment, not lukewarm commitment. It requires our full attention and commitment, and our salvation should prove itself out by the way that we live our lives. And so uh, being uh, Bible-believing Christians, we should be more likely than any other group of people to make progress on the road to Christ-likeness. Uh, I was looking at a recent Barna uh, study. George Barna is a pollster who uh, takes, takes polls and asks uh, questions about how Christians and others are living their lives. And, and, and in a recent poll that I looked at, uh, Barna interviewed people who professed to have a biblical worldview uh, and said that they lived their lives by the truth of the Bible. And so uh, among those people that he interviewed and the people who uh, did not hold to that same worldview, uh, he found that, that uh, Christians are nine times more likely to avoid adult-only entertainment on the internet. Uh, they're four times more likely to uh, boycott objectionable companies and objectionable products. They're twice as likely to volunteer to serve the needy. Uh, Christians are 49% uh, more likely to give their time and their money uh, to needy causes uh, than people who are not. Uh, born-again Christians or Bible-believing Christians. And so the statistics seem to bear out uh, that uh, people who believe the Bible and have a biblical worldview are progressing on the road to sanctification. Uh, now, that's just one study, but I think we know uh, that we ought to be progressing toward Christ-likeness, and, and sometimes uh, that results in some, some of these things that we do that are different than what the rest of the world does. But I think what the statistics bear out is that there's a difference between calling yourself a Christian, that's one thing, and actually living out the Christian life and becoming obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which we've been committed. So I just want to be sure that you're hearing me. I'm not saying that works save, not even close. We know that works don't save. We're saved by grace through faith, uh, but the works are evidence that we have been saved. And so that's why James said, faith without works is dead. Uh, our faith should cause us to live a new life for Christ, and people will know that we are Christians by our love. And so our behavior doesn't save us, but it is proof of our faith. So sanctification requires more than just calling ourselves Christian. You can't just say, I'm a Christian, and then not live it out at all, because that's what James was talking about when he said, faith without works is dead. Uh, it requires us, sanctification does, to, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to listen to his voice and to obey uh, and accomplish his will for our lives and to do the work that God called us to do. And that's when we become slaves of righteousness, where we're no longer required to live under sin's bondage. And in fact, in Paul's way of thinking, it's illogical, it's inconsistent, it's impossible to call yourself a Christian and then go continue to live the life that you used to live when you have been set free from sin. You're no longer its, it's uh, subject anymore. Uh, imagine you got a new job. It's Monday morning. You show up for the new job and you work, uh, you know, from eight o'clock in the morning to noon, and then you go and take your lunch break, and then you go back to your old job for the afternoon and you start to work there. And and when your your new boss realizes what's going on, he says, "What are you doing? You work for me. You don't work for that guy anymore." And and so you're going to get disciplined, or you're going to get fired, or something is going to happen to you. You don't serve that old boss anymore. You serve the new boss. 
Uh, and sin is our old boss. We don't serve that boss anymore. We don't serve that master. We serve righteousness now. And so uh, serving righteousness, we see that there are results uh, that follow being slaves of righteousness. And we see that in verses 20 to 23. The results are beneficial now and in eternity. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, what we see is, again, I hear Paul comparing our old lives of sin to our new lives as slaves to God. And we see again that we can't serve two masters. Verse 20, when we served sin, it was impossible to serve righteousness. You were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't even know righteousness existed. You didn't know that there was an opportunity. There's, there's somebody else to serve. I thought sin was the only master we have. No, there is another master, and it's righteousness, and we can serve righteousness uh, but when we were serving sin, all we were doing was just racking up a list of deeds uh, that we have done in our past that we are now ashamed of. And Paul asks, well, what benefit did you derive from these things? And obviously, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is, you derive no benefit from these things, at least as, re as uh, with regard to your sanctification or to your salvation. Uh, so that's what Paul means when he says that you're ashamed of them now. You know, sins, of course, they seem fun at the time, but as someone once said, uh, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences of it. And all that means is that, you know, you, you do an act now, but you have no idea uh, what direction that act is going to take and what the consequences or results of that thing are going to be, because there's always a price tag attached to sin. And so we don't know what the price tag is, but we know that the cost is high. And that's why Paul says there is no profit in those things. So there's no profit, but also these things, these sins are shameful. Uh, some of our sins are so depraved, so regrettable, so embarrassing uh, that we won't even tell anyone about them ever. Like even after 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we did something so long ago that was so shameful that we still, we hold these things as close secrets to ourselves because we don't want anyone to know that we could do such a thing. So sin is unprofitable and it's embarrassing. And we see in verse 21 that these sins are also deadly. It's, the text is clear that sin leads to death. Well, if you have come to faith later in life, you may have a list like that, a list of sins that you are so ashamed of and that you'll never tell anybody, but thank God for his grace. And if you came to faith as a young person, just praise God that he spared you from so many of these things. Don't ever think that you don't have a great testimony because you don't have a list of horrid things that you have been delivered from. That fact is the great testimony, that you have been spared from those things as God has protected you during your life from those things that some other believers regret so deeply. But the amazing thing about God's grace, though, is that it's the power to save all of us. So whether you came to faith as a child or a teenager or in your 20s or 40s or 60s or 80s, 
or as the thief on the cross in his final hours, God's grace is the same. He gives the grace to all who believe, and we see that in verse 22. Uh, we have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. That is our salvation. And that being enslaved to God is also uh, now what we're talking about, our sanctification. And then finally, uh, ultimately, the, the benefit, the final benefit is glorification, which as Paul uh, calls it here, the outcome, eternal life. And so we see just in this one verse, the benefits of, uh, of entrusting ourselves to God. We see salvation, sanctification, and glorification all in the same verse. And so, then Paul summarized the entire chapter in one verse, verse 23. And in fact, I think you could argue that he, in, he summarized the entire first six uh, chapters of Romans in verse 23. Uh, the first half of the verse says that the wages of sin is death. Uh, that would summarize chapters one through three, uh, at least the first half of chapter three. Do you remember uh, as we went through those chapters how Paul was continuing to call out various groups of people uh, who had you know, perhaps thought that they were free from God's judgment. He talked about the people who uh, knew about God from nature. He talked about the people who knew about God from Scripture and said that nobody has any excuse. The wages of sin is death. Uh, the word for wages here is a Greek word that means rations that are given to a soldier for service. And no soldier would ever be denied his rations. He earned them by service uh, in the Roman army. And so when we live a life of refusal to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, well, we are earning rations for ourselves too. But the ration that we are earning is death. And it won't be withheld from us if we continue to live a life of rebellion against God. And the death that Paul is talking about is not physical death. We are all going to die physical death. The death that Paul here is talking about is spiritual death, or as Revelation calls it, the second death. That means eternity in hell apart from God. So the wages of sin is death. And we all know that part of the verse, right? But the good news is in the second half of verse 23, in which I think this uh, summarizes from the second half of, of Romans 3 all the way to the end of chapter 6 here. It says that it's the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we looked at how God saves us in the beginning of verse, uh, in uh, chapter 3, verse 21, and then through the illustration of Abraham in chapter 4, and then we looked at all the benefits that accompany salvation in chapter 5, and now uh, into sanctification in chapter 6. And this is all that we see here, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the alternative of uh, the things that we earn as a result of our sin, these rations, is the free gift that God gives us uh, called eternal life. And this, this Greek word for free is the word charis. Uh, you know, a lot of people are naming their, their baby daughters charis now because it's such a pretty name. Uh, but the word actually means grace. So many people are, many, many girls are named grace. Charis is just the Greek form of our word grace. But because grace is free uh, and it's not earned, most uh, translations of your Bible will translate it as the free gift. Now, that seems kind of redundant, right? Uh, a gift is typically free, but, but think about it. Sometimes gifts are not free. Sometimes gifts 
are conditional. Uh, how many times will you continue to give your wife a birthday present year after year after year if she never gives you one back, right? Uh, it's conditional in that way. You'll stop giving the gift. It's, uh, I will give to you as long as you give to me. Uh, so in that way, a uh, gift can be conditional. And so it's translated free gift so that we'll understand that this gift has no conditions whatsoever attached to it. Whether you give back or not, that gift to you will not be revoked. Uh, so we can't earn it. It's given without conditions, and it can't be revoked. God gives us this gift that we can't pay back because of his great love for us. You know, there's been a lot of talk uh, as we've watched the news over the past uh, several weeks about justice, right? Everybody wants justice. We want justice for George Floyd. And then we want justice for the people who have rioted and damaged and destroyed buildings. We all want justice. And it's right to want justice, but the last thing that a Christian should be asking for in regard to his own personal life is justice, right? When, when, when I look at myself, I say, God, don't give me justice because I know what justice means for me. Justice means a one-way ticket to hell. To me, I need grace. And so I ask for grace, and that's what God offers here in these verses. A sinners who won't repent of their sins, well, they're going to get justice. But sinners who do repent of their sins, well, they're going to get grace, the free gift of eternal life. And then they serve him out of gratitude for this gift. When Jesus offered himself on the cross as the penalty for our sins, he said, I'll pay your debt for you. The debt that you owe, I will pay it for you in full. All you need to do to receive this gift is to receive me, to believe in me for your salvation. So he offered a way for them to be saved, to not have to pay the penalty of their sin. But he didn't just offer a way, he offered them one way. He offered them the only way. There is only one way. Jesus talked in the Sermon on the Mount about choosing the narrow gate that leads to the narrow path that few will find that leads, uh, to, uh, that leads to heaven. Rather than choosing the wide gate that leads to the broad road that leads to destruction that many will find. And so the gift is through Jesus Christ alone. There's no other way. And if you think that you're going to heaven by anything that you have done rather than by what he has done, well, then you're sorely mistaken, and I would implore you to reconsider that decision. The gospel is offered to everyone, but the only way to receive it is to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And once you do, he will change your life. And that's what sanctification is, the process of having your life changed. Well, we talked in chapter 6 about knowing, about uh, considering, and about presenting. So let's think of just a couple other things by way of application that we can be doing as we progress on the road to Christ-likeness. And the first one is this. Do what you ought to do, not what you want to do. Sanctification means obedience to the Holy Spirit, uh, even when we don't want to obey. And so in the flesh, we want to go our own way, and often our flesh is in conflict with the Holy Spirit. But over time, as we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit, as we learn to obey him, uh, I think that our wills uh, tend to uh, agree. They tend to be the same. Uh, if you look down a set of railroad tracks, 
you know that these railroad tracks are parallel, right? It's an optical illusion. But as you look down the railroad tracks, you see that these two tracks seem to merge uh, over time and distance. And I, I kind of think of our sanctification like that. Uh, we're apart. We, we become Christians, but still the old man you know, wants to rise up and do what the old man wants to do. Uh, but as you walk the Christian life, you see that down the road, uh, your will and the Holy Spirit's will uh, really start to merge and become the same. And then as we learn to obey in small matters, uh, we'll be much more readily trained to be obedient in much larger matters. You know, a horse trainer will tell you that it takes about 60 days to break a horse so that you can ride it. The first 30 days just to allow you to sit on him, and then the next 30 days uh, you learn to train him and he learns to do uh, what you want him to do. And, and I think that we are like wild horses when we become Christians, you know, bucking and, and wanting to do the things that we want to do. And we need to be trained to do what we ought to do, not what we want to do. And I think over time we learn that what we want to do and what the Holy Spirit wants us to do will become the same as we continue to cooperate with him. So do what you ought to do, not what you want to do. And secondly, don't wait to claim your freedom. You know, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was delivered in 1863, and that legally freed the slaves. But they didn't know it, uh, and nobody told them. Uh, they remained slaves for another couple of years until the war ended, and it was only then when they knew they were free that they actually were able to claim their freedom. Jesus said, when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul said in Galatians, it is for freedom that you have been set free. And so we need to know that Jesus died not only to free us from the guilt of sin, from the guilt that we would need to pay apart from what he's done for us, but he's also set us free from sin's power. We need to claim that freedom for ourselves today and live it out. When the United States signed the Declaration of Independence, we declared ourselves free from taxation without representation and free from the tyranny of England. Sin is a tyrannical ruler. Being a slave to sin leads to crushing guilt and grief and regret and debt and loss of spouse and family and everything that's important to us. We need to declare ourselves free from sin's tyranny and claim our power to serve God. So when sin comes knocking at your door saying to you, it is I, you have the power like Augustine to say yes, but it is no longer I. So claim your freedom from sin today, and I will claim my freedom from sin as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this incredible chapter 6 of the book of Romans. Lord, help us to understand that we do not serve sin anymore. We serve the Holy Spirit, and we do it happily, joyfully, willingly, out of such gratitude from the overflow of our hearts that you have saved us from the penalty that we deserve. Lord, show us. Show us, Lord, how to be your servants. Lord, mold us, teach us, do what you need to do in our lives to get us to obey you. Help us not to be stubborn people who just call themselves Christians. Help us to be willing participants in your plan, Lord. Help us to become your servants. And Lord, we lift all these things up to you in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.